All right, we're continuing in our sermon series in Revelation. We're looking at Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, if you want to follow along in an actual Bible, it's page 1033. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created in heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, the seventh angel, the mystery of God, would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. We need to pray because we need help to understand this word, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for all your gifts of grace that you just lavishly give to us. For your scripture, for the church, for Jesus, who is the head of the church, for the Holy Spirit, who brings to life these words. And so we pray that as we receive it, O oh God, that you would grow in us faith, and fruit. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, just as uh, Pastor Brandon opened the service, he said that our words are powerful, and he quoted from the book of James. Our words are powerful. With our words, we can hurt. With our words, we can love. And in the same way, the words that we hear, they can hurt, and they can make us feel loved. Words are powerful, but there comes a point where we sometimes wonder about our words. Like, do my words and my testimony and me sharing the faith, are those words powerful? Sometimes we doubt it, actually. And so we don't really pursue talking about Jesus with anyone. So what's going to convince me that my words actually do matter? That sharing the faith is one of the normal ways that God works through us, his people, to make himself known. It's a common struggle, I think. And so, how can our passage help us? 
I'll be coming back to that question, how can our passage help us? But first, I want us to do a very brief review of where we've come so far in the book of Revelation. Because even from this review and this big picture perspective, as we just scan through um, the, the chapters 1 to 11, we can see that God wants us to talk about our faith. In other words, there's a point to this review, okay? If you remember, there was a pattern that we saw with the seals and trumpets. In fact, I've given, a, given you this diagram, hopefully everyone has it in their programs, this diagram of this overview of the book of Revelation, the summary and structure so far. Good luck looking at it, seeing it, making sense of it, because it's, uh, I tried to blow it up as big as possible, okay? But basically, um, in the beginning, chapters 1 to 3, you have the message to the seven churches. It starts with a vision of Jesus and then the message to the seven churches. I have it below chapters 4 and 5 because one, chapters 1 to 3 is what takes place on the ground on earth. What do we see up in heaven? Chapters 4 and 5, the throne of God and the Lamb. But then when we come to the seals and the trumpets, which we're dealing with today, the trumpets, um, the seals and trumpets are one above one, each other, not because one's in heaven and one's on earth, although that does come out as well, but because they're dealing with the same period of history. These sevens are cyclical, and we're getting different perspectives on God's judgment on the world. So with the seals, the first four seals, they describe general judgment on the earth. Then with seals five and six, we get two visions from a more personal, um, individual perspective. With that fifth seal specifically, there was the vision of the Christian martyrs under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? And then with the sixth seal, seal, there was this second vision of the final gathering of all believers around the throne of God in heaven above. There's going to be a time when there are no more tears. The end is going to be good. And then the seventh seal, there was a delay, a 30-minute silence. And it involved prayers being lifted up to the saints. And God responded with the final judgment. He heard the prayers and he answered. Now, um, even with the seals, within the seals, there's this 4 to one um, structure. Four meaning the first four seals, general judgment. Two being more specific spiritual uh, perspective. And then the seventh, which is the end of the world. Now, I tried drawing my version of uh, this, um, but you're not seeing it for a reason, Okay. <laughs> Uh, I tried, but my, my, the, the only difference between my version and this one, besides the artistic quality, is that my version includes the 4-2-1 pattern when it comes to the sevens. And that's significant. See, with that last seal, the seventh seal, it highlighted this literary pause where we have that 30-minute silence because that provides emphasis for us. And it points us to the application. What, what are the seals all about? How is the church to be held by them? Well, it's seeing how God would deal with the world in history and the future. That God, we would speak prayers to God, and he would answer them. 
See, prayer is how God's people can be helped in the midst of the fallen world. I've tried to diagram it for you with those two icons, the waves going up and the praying hands, right? Now, so we're moving on to the trumpets then. Would we see the same patterns with the trumpets? Well, that's why we label it a pattern. It's repeated. And sure enough, four, two, one. The first four trumpets announce God's judgment in general on the world. Then trumpets five and six, we get this personal and individual perspective dealing with God's torment and death on, on unbelievers. And then there's a delay with the seventh trumpet again. But this time, this delay is before the seventh trumpet is sounded. What will the seventh trumpet be, though? We kind of know what to expect. But there's this pause, and it builds a drama and tension for us. And with this delay, we get, again, two visions. And that's what chapters 10 and chapter 11 are about, what we're going to look at this week and next week. But what's the function of all that? It's highlighting something for us. Just like with the seals, as I've said, God, um, words spoken to God were answered in prayer. With the trumpets, though, our words are not directed to God in prayer, but now our words are directed to the world in proclamation. Again, you see the icons at the, at, at the end of the seven trumpets. Okay, That's what we're going to see. So how this book is organized, it reveals relevance in the structure. The lesson for us, will our words have any impact? The trumpets announce God's judgment. They are sure to happen. We're under the fallenness of the world now. It is happening. But our words, God's words we're sure about, but our words, what effect will they have? We're not so sure. Will we be faithful to the task? And if we don't see anything happen, will we keep going, believing? And if something does happen when we speak our words and it incites a bad response, will the cost involved be worth it to keep believing, to keep speaking? So again, how can today's passage help us think rightly about our words and our testimony? Three points for you. First one is God's word is ready before the seventh trumpet is sounded, we'll go over these two visions, the first one here in chapter 10. This week we're focused on this mighty angel and what he has to say. Look at verse 1. Revelation 10.1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. If you can imagine this mighty angel, he is this fantastic figure. Mighty, huge, one leg on the land and the other leg on the sea. We're meant to imagine a towering figure, not someone just standing at the beach, one foot on the sand, one foot in the water. Not that small, okay? A towering figure where all the earth is this angel's domain. I just saw a graphic of, a, uh, of various man-made buildings in the world, and the tallest building in the world, 2,700 feet, half a mile. 
half a mile high. It's called the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Okay? They have that distinction and honor. You think that little country Dubai feels like a little player? No, not anymore. <laughs> they are mighty. They can boast about their, their um, building. So this angel, he is tall, he's big, he's mighty. And all of that is conveyed by this description of the angel, which sounds very much like how Jesus was described back in chapter 1 in um, Revelation, even though this angel is not Jesus. But listen to how Jesus was described back then in the very beginning, the opening vision of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.13. One like a son of man, clothed um, with a long robe and golden sash, hairs white like wool, eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze from a furnace, a voice like a roar of many waters, face shining like the sun. Now, it's similar, but not the same, obviously. But the angel is described in this way to show us that this is no insignificant angel, but a mighty and important one, angel. And now that he's got our attention, there are two other things about this mighty angel to point out. Verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Right off the bat, the angel's voice, it matches his size. He roars seven thunders, but how strange what happens next. John is ready to write down what the angel is roaring, but he's told to not write it down, to seal it up. What's that about, right? All this weird stuff going on. Well, this is a literary technique where an unexpected stop in the action is trying to highlight something for us. We saw it with the 30-minute silence. We're intrigued by these thunders, but it's shut down. And so you're thinking, naturally, everyone's going to be thinking, like, why? Why is it stopped? Why can't we hear about it, right? But what if we're meant to be diverted to focus on this other thing? What's the other thing to point out that, about this mighty angel? He's got a little scroll open in his hand. Don't focus on what's off limits, but on what the scroll is, which is not sealed. It's open. So this literary technique, stopping us in, our, in the action, it's illustrating a biblical principle for us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Okay? It's saying, own what is revealed. See, this is the theological and literary way to point to what's on the scroll. What's the deal with this little scroll in the angel's hand? What do we know about it? Well, it's we're told that it was open. It wasn't sealed like the, the seven scrolls. It's open, meaning that the contents and its meaning was knowable. It, were, it was knowable. But how, how on earth can we work out what's on this scroll? Do we have any clues? Look at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Keep that verse there. Keep that um, screen up because the clues are in that verse, verse 7. There are words, key words that sound familiar, and those words are mystery and prophecy. Prophets, okay? What is the mystery of God? The word mystery is used in the Bible it is never meant to know, it never meant to mean unknowable mystery, like mysterious, but always something that is hidden but now revealed. Back in chapter 1 of Revelation, the word mystery was used there, and we see how it's used. Revelation 1.20 says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Right? There. The mystery was what the symbols meant. We didn't really know what they meant, but it was revealed and explained. So now the mystery is no longer a mystery, right? Um, here in chapter 10, the mystery would be fulfilled. And it was something that was already announced by the prophets. Prophets, that's the other key word. What was announced by them? What was their message? Again, we've got to go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation. What was the word of the prophets? Revelation 1 to the very beginning, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What were the words of the prophecy? It's about the word of God testimony of Jesus, what would happen and be fulfilled. Okay, so with all that, trying to bring it all together, lastly, we're told that the scroll, it was a little scroll, meaning that whatever was written on this scroll, it wasn't very long. It was a shorter message. What would be the message of Jesus that the prophets had already announced? A, a short and simple message. Well, in a word, gospel. That's what was on this little scroll. In fact, that's how it fits with the word mystery because that's how it's often used in the New Testament. It's always around the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1.25, we just finished the um, sermon series in Colossians, so we're familiar with it. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And specifically that this gospel, this good news... Jesus, he was crucified, but he was raised. He was ascended. He's the victorious Lord of Lords who is ruling. And guess what? He is coming back. He is returning. So you see how that was a mystery, but no longer. And yet it still needs fulfilling. 
Jesus is coming back. It's really simple. But you might be thinking, oh, I'm not sure. What's, how can you know what's on this scroll? How can anyone know, right? Well, hang on. Hopefully it'll make sense as we keep going. I mean, I am tempted to say that, yeah, you know, I'm a pastor, so eventually I would have figured that out. The answer is always Jesus, right? It's either Jesus or love or God. But um, I don't know. At the same time, I think we all have to get used to the fact that Revelation is not saying anything that's vastly new or different. It's just giving us plain, simple, biblical truth that we already know, but it's giving it to us in a completely different, vivid, far-out kind of way. For example, just on, just on that point, just so that we know that it's really simple and basic. Nothing new is being said in the book of Revelation. And that way, uh, you know, I can sum up the book of Revelation for us in three words. This whole book of Revelation, three words. You want to know what the book of Revelation is all about? The Lamb wins. That's the whole book of Revelation for you. The Lamb wins. That's all this book is all about. And so with all of that, the little scroll, Jesus is the ascended and victorious King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will return to save his people and to judge the world. There is no other prophetic word that needs to be spoken. In fact, we're told, we're told this at the very end of the book of Revelation. If you go to the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, 6 says this. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Are we going to believe that Jesus is returning? Well, of course, because that's just our faith. What is the prophecy? I am coming soon. Hang on, no matter how bad it gets. And so this mighty angel, coming back to Revelation 10, the mighty angel is saying, let there be no more delay with the proclamation of this gospel good news, the little scroll's open message. It needed to happen quickly before the seventh trumpet was sounded. That's what the little scroll is about. God's word, it was ready to be made known. All right, the hard work is done, okay? If you're bought in, then everything else will fit right into place. Our second point, God's word must be taken in. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me that little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Now, this might seem very odd until you realize that God has done this before. This should sound familiar to us. We heard it in the book of Ezekiel, our first reading, God was telling Ezekiel to eat the scroll and just give the same the message to the nation of Israel. 
eat this scroll. What does that mean? Well, let me just give it to you straight and move on. The word has to become a part of you. That's what it means to eat the scroll. Just as you received it and you took it into your heart, that was the language of Ezekiel. This word has to be, become a part of you, so much so to the point that you're going to be changed by it. Just as a kid, he's going to eat and eat, and over time, what's going to happen? He's going to grow. That's what this word has to do to you. It's the gospel that has to grow us. Not self-help, not leadership principle, not life hack, not words that stroke our egos or just make us feel better. The gospel. This scroll was sweet to the taste in the mouth. That's the gospel. That's our good news. That's what we live by, right? What's the psalm that speaks to this? Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How does that psalm start? Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Because you believe it and you're changed by it. You know you have to live by it. It's the only way to live. But when you fully digest this scroll into the stomach, it becomes bitter. Why? Now, there's some variety of meanings, but it's all very similar, and it's only slightly different. It's all within the same sphere, okay? There is good news because there is bad news. And so for us as believers, we recognize our sin. We know that our sin deserves judgment before a holy God. We recognize how unholy we are, and that is unpleasant to us. But we also believe that judgment is real. And one of the ways we know that it's real is when we pray, we pray about truth and righteousness. And how many of us are uncomfortable about praying about righteousness because you recognize your sin? And then a couple of weeks ago, I, I even exhorted us to pray about unrighteousness. Were you able to do that? That's hard to do. Psalm 3, it's like, you know, one of the earliest psalms, King David prays against unrighteousness. And you know what he says? He says, God, kick in the teeth of the wicked. <laughs> I mean, that is a hard word because that's what truth is like. That's what unrighteousness is like. And of course, we're not comfortable with that, but we need to become comfortable with the truth of God. That's what non-believers don't like about the gospel. The bad news of judgment. It's not well received when we speak it to others. Just think about what happened to uh, this one guy. His name's Jesus. He came into the world. He said, I have good news for you. The kingdom of God is here. What happened to him? He was crucified. All of this we have to become comfortable with. But it's never easy. The truth is often bitter. But 
all of us must own this word. Make it ours. Eat it to the point that it forms us. In fact, in the language of the, of the text, there's something in this description of these simple actions that are mentioned. Verse 8, the voice from heaven, he says, go, take the scroll that is in the open, in the hand, um, that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. Right? One commentator, he writes that everything about this angel is designed to provoke in us irresistible power. So what does John do as he approaches this mighty angel? Verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And again, he said, take and eat it. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. See, just from these simple words and verbs, we're seeing that this little old John he would dare to go to this mighty angel and demand the scroll. He can be that confident. And it's because he knows what's on the scroll. It's like he's got this get-out-of-free-jail card. It's this gospel word. It's his salvation. You know, our faith, it's often described as we're all just beggars looking for a meal that will give us life, right? That's the good news of Jesus. And John was starving. He demanded that scroll because he knew he needed life. The gospel is life, and it's what forms us. Do you need the gospel? Do you think it's, a, it's just a, a way to be a nice person? Maybe it's good for our kids so that they grow up with morals. Is it? helpful for you to feel some inner peace? No, the gospel is life. It is salvation. It is new creation. It is hope. It is eternity. It is truth. Are you owning your faith? Meaning, have you taken it in? Is it forming you? Um, I've noticed as I go to stores and I have business transactions at stores that there are some cashiers at, at stores that, you know, you just kind of wonder about. They, they give you the change back or your receipt and they hold their arms out like three inches, right? And you have to like reach over the counter to like get what belongs to you, you know? What am I talking about? They're like these cashiers that are like so unmotivated that they can't even reach out their arm properly to hand you, you know, the, the customer, what is yours, your money. They could care less about what they're doing. <laughs> and some operate by the most minimal and bare ethical standard, and it often shows in the little things. You would want and expect an employee who's going to be decisive and deliberate, enthusiastic and service-oriented, right? Uh, what are we doing with our faith? Are we being minimal with it? Like a purposeless, lost cashier? Have we forgotten what God has done for us and whose we are? Take that word. Eat it. 
sees your faith convictions. That's our second point. God's word must be taken in. And then lastly, God's word must be proclaimed. Verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. God's word has to be formed in you before it can be spoken. But it needs to be spoken. And so from this vision, John's being reminded about his task as an apostle. The pastor and author Eugene Peterson, he has a tremendous insight. He writes this. He says, law tells us how God is involved in our lives, and prophecy tells us how we are involved in God's life. Law tells us how we are to live God's way now, what's in our control and our responsibility, but prophecy tells us about the future, which is in God's control and his responsibility, and he includes us in that work. And so even though, as we step back and look at the book of Revelation, there's like this overwhelming sense of doom and gloom, but this chapter is reminding John and the church, be encouraged in how you live as a believer. Continue the work that we are doing together. That's what God is saying to John and the church. That's why the voice from heaven said prophesy and didn't have to specify the prophecy. In fact, this is, how, this is what the voice from heaven says to John. There's this one word that sticks out, verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Again, that's the word. You've heard a lot in the visions. You've seen a lot in the visions, but let's stay on point, John. Let me say this again, John. <laughs> Get on with what you know you need to do. You know, this, again, it, it reminds me very much of like what God said to Elijah back in the Old Testament. I hope you know the story of Elijah. If you don't, very briefly, Elijah ran. He was speaking God's word, and he is, he's running away from, the king, from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who were the wicked king and queen of Israel at the time. And God sustained Elijah in the wilderness, but then he goes into a cave, and God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then God says to Elijah, Prepare to meet me at the mountain. And Elijah goes to the mountain, and what happens? There's all this wind, and there's an earthquake, and then there's fire, and then there's that still small voice, right? Why was it a small voice? It's because there was nothing new that God had to say to Elijah. Nothing new, just like this little scroll. Nothing new. We're not even told there what God whispered to Elijah. Why? Because God didn't have to say anything. You know what to do, Elijah, so just get on with it. Speak as a prophet. That was God's message to Elijah and to John here as well. So John did not need any more revelation he did not need more details on the elaborate plan that God was going to un unveil. 
He didn't need more motivation to empower him as to convince him. Just get on with it. God's gospel good news must be proclaimed. And just as it was a reminder for John, it's a reminder for all of us, isn't it? Do we believe this prophecy that Jesus is going to return? Such a simple and basic truth. Can we testify to the sweetness of the gospel? Time is short. That seventh trumpet is about to blow. And now we know why we get all this crazy, fantastic language from the book of Revelation. All the imagery and symbolism. We need to be shaken into our senses and back into our right minds about the truth of this basic faith that we own. It's God's way of getting our attention. Seize the faith and speak it. But sometimes when it comes to evangelism, actually most times, when it comes to us sharing and talking about our faith, we're seized by fear. So as I close, when it comes to application, let me see if I can build this up with encouragement to try to form the gospel in us some more. Okay? Application, how can we form, be formed by the gospel more? We need to apply the gospel to our fears. Now, this, this applies to all areas of life, not just evangelism, but we're using evangelism because that's what Paul, I mean, that's what um, God is talking to John about. So I have three fears to mention in evangelism. The fear of the charge of hypocrisy, the fear of failing in evangelism, and the fear of thinking that our words are ineffective. Okay, those are the three fears I'm going to touch on. Hypocrisy. Failure, ineffective. Okay. When it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith, some of us may be hesitant because we've heard someone say, oh, Christians are hypocrites. And you feel like, oh. And maybe someone has called you a hypocrite, right? We're afraid. But we all need to grow out of this fear of being called a hypocrite. First, we need to figure this out with God and then with others. How might, be, how might we be a hypocrite with God, first and foremost? Let's just get this one out of the way. Let's make sure of this one, right? Some can say they believe that they're a Christian, but they actually don't tell anyone about it. They don't tell them what they did on the weekends. They don't tell people, right? In that way, no one else knows what you are, but God knows. And he's saying, what's up with that? Are you embarrassed by me? Let's not be a hypocrite with God, because God should not taste bitter in our mouths. And I guess this is a word, really, for the kids and for the teens among us, right? Hoping it's not for the adults. Um, for everyone, though, we all need to be formed by the gospel so that our deeds and our words align. So, I mean, we all are just trying to live faithfully, right, consistently according to our faith, not hypocritically. And so what are you going to say when someone calls you a hypocrite? Well, if you've been caught, if you have been inconsistent, then hopefully you could admit your wrongdoing without feeling condemned or ashamed. Why? Even though you're wrong, 
Well, it's because of the gospel. What God has done to you is far more significant than what we've done wrong. That's how you understand the gospel for yourself and make it yours. Start to privilege God's word and his work on you before anyone else's. So if you're called out and you're wrong, you say, oh, man, okay, I'm guilty. Maybe you need to say sorry, depending on what the situation is. But you also need to be able to say, I'm still secure in Christ because of the gospel. And if you're not in the wrong, you're being falsely accused, just someone's, you're in an argument and someone just calls you a hypocrite, hopefully you can be composed and not get offended like everyone gets offended. Hopefully you, cannot get, you won't get offended and strike back, but you can be able to take your stand secure and simply defend yourself. We don't need to be scared by the accusation, nor do we want to be sinful in our response to the accusation. And sure, I know it all sounds kind of easy just to say, but really our hope and our strength is in the gospel. What God has done to you is far more significant than what you have done wrong. Let's keep, keep that growing in us, making it a part of us, and let's keep working out what the gospel really means and how it forms us from the inside out. Now, I don't have a lot of cases of being called a hypocrite, but I, have do, I do have plenty of cases of failing in evangelism. So that's the second fear that the gospel needs to address, our fear of failing in evangelism. Let's say you had the opportunity to share the faith, but you did not seize the opportunity and you said nothing. You know, just for me, this past week, I was in a cafe, I was uh, working, doing my work in this room in a cafe, and a lady with a baby, she walked in, she asked if she could put down a blanket, let the baby play. In came another friend with another baby, so two ladies are playing with their babies while I'm doing my work, and they, you know, they said a sorry, and I said, that's fine, this is a, a public space, right? As they're talking and as I'm working, I hear one of the ladies, she sounds like she has an Aussie accent, and so I'm like, Ah, I can talk to this person about Australia because I've lived there. And, you know, I'm not going to intrude, and so they do their thing, but then the time is getting short, and I have to go to my next appointment. So as I'm packing up, the ladies apologize again, and, and that's when I'm like, all right, so you've been to Australia. You're Australian. And, you know, that's how we start talking. And, and I look at my watch, and it's like, oh, man, i got to go. And so I, I left. <laughs> And didn't talk more beyond the small talk. I didn't have the opportunity nor the cleverness to somehow talk about faith and church and all that stuff. Could I have been more forthright? Could I have been more direct? Well, you, if you understand this situation, you probably have felt like me. Just a lot of guilt, right? But you know what I need to do? I need to have the gospel form me. What does that mean? We're not judged by our deeds first, but by what we believe first and foremost. Right? That's what I need to remember. I'm not judged by my deeds or my failed deeds first, but by what we believe first and foremost. 
That's the gospel, isn't it? Not what we do, but what we believe. Not what we've done, but what God's done to us, right? And just to drive this important point home, here's a diagnostic question for you. This is, you know, one of those kinds of questions that gets you to think. Are you a saved sinner or are you a saint that sins? Are you a saved sinner or saint that sins? Which one do you think? You're like, I don't know, <laughs> right? Do you believe that the gospel has fundamentally changed you? Spiritually speaking, you bet it has. You went from dead to alive by a work of God. You've been changed. Even if you don't feel it, the feelings might catch up with you, but you need to know that you've been changed, spiritually speaking. See, everyone is a sinner whether you believe God or not. But not everyone's a saint in the way that God views us as saints and the way we properly understand saints. Saints aren't special people. They're just all of God's people, the church. And all saints sin. But what makes us different is that we have good news to live by. I'm forgiven, reconciled, justified, a new creation, heading for glory, but I am still in my flesh, and so I sin. But all of us need to own our identity in Christ and his gospel. It needs to be formed in us so that we can speak it. I'm not um, a saved sinner, right? I'm not a saved sinner. I mean, it's just language, but yes, I am a saved sinner as well, but what I really am is a saint that sits. Okay, and then just lastly, the gospel, it deals with the fear of me and my words being ineffective. Can I really make a difference? Well, at this point, I think all of us just need to work with our realities. Some are more outspoken, more people are not. Most people don't do walk-up evangelism regularly. What we do is relational evangelism, right? So here's a way for us to do it better. We may not be so bold as to talk about our faith uh, with anyone and um, as openly as we might want to, but here's how we can do it better. First, start to care about the relationship. Be caring and patient with anyone and everyone from stranger to friend to family. It's not the only thing to do. It's not an excuse so that we could avoid having awkward conversations. It is a start, though, and it sets us and sets conditions for us to be able to have opportunities. But I'm finding that something as simple as that it's hard to do, being patient and caring. Patience takes a lot of time. And I'm starting to recognize, even in myself, I think this is how the devil works. He puts everyone in a rush. No time for anyone. No time to think, no time to pray, no time to even respond with another person, you know, when you have an opportunity. 
It sounds easy, like making time for a believer, it may be easier than having a bold conversation, uh, uh, evangelistic conversation, but given our culture, whew, it seems like it's just as hard to slow down. I need to have the gospel formed in me. What does that mean? I need to remember the good news. God was and is still so patient with me. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ and the power of his blood, right? Knowing this sweet word more and more for ourselves, having it be a part of us, that's what's going to grow us to have the power to speak, to prophesy, and to talk about Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this word to us. Thank you that this crazy vision, which seems so disconnected and has nothing to do with, has nothing to do with us, has everything to do with us. We thank you that we have received this gospel, sweet, beautiful word. And we do pray that it would continue to grow in us and would be ever sweet and grow us so that we would even come to embrace the bitterness of the word. Help us to accept it, to be changed by it, to grow through it, oh God, your truth. And grow us to the point that because we are yours, because we, you have put in our hearts love for you, because you are remaking us, that we would keep believing it and keep growing in it and keep speaking about it. Oh, you are so good. We thank you for your grace and your love to us. We give you all the praise. Help us to do that more and more in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.